podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the 99.94 Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. Which is what Cam has done. And he says, is it just me or did Australia win the Women's World T20 without actually playing all that well over the tournament? I didn't think they played particularly well in the finals. Actually, I didn't think they batted that well against New Zealand either. And yet they still made a lot of runs. I don't think they played to their maximum. But they don't really have to, I suppose. They could probably play at 85% and win most uh, most of the time. So they certainly weren't at their best in the final. And I thought the semifinal, they were a little bit patchier than they normally are. They just have so many options. It's a ridiculous cricket team. Um, it, you look at the players who are outside of the team, let alone the players who are inside, the flexibility that they have available to them. We've never seen a team with this many different weapons before. And you can talk about the consistency and, you know, being the best team over a long run, but just on, you know, that there are no weak spots in any of their teams and even their backups are really, really strong. So uh, it's certainly from that perspective, just completely different to to everything else uh, that we've ever seen before. So um, (laughs) yeah, it's really good. They're a really good team. You're a ridiculous team. Uh, all things considered. What we got next here? Penn says, should the batting team be able to decline the extra ball from a no ball or wide in tests? Batting for a draw, you don't want the extra balls. Uh, set batter with the tail. Yeah, I, we've, we've covered this before, actually, Ben. I'm pretty sure on this podcast, but if not, um, I've certainly talked about it before. It is one of those things that doesn't really make any sense. Not The extra ball may be a hindrance to the batting team rather than you know an advantage. I think you know, mostly in T20 or one-day cricket, you would say, it's an advantage. Um, it's a free hit anyway. Um, but, you know, from that perspective, it does make sense uh, in test crickets on occasions when it wouldn't be. It, I think it's, it's maybe just something, you know, the way that we've started thinking about cricket recently has changed a little bit. And so this has become a bigger issue for some people. Uh, but I agree. Uh, I'm trying to remember who asked this. I think it was a lawyer based in America who first asked this question. Was it Noah? I think that's his name. He's probably going to correct me, but I think that's his name. I, I met him once, but I think he was the one who asked me that question, and it's a very fair one. James says, which test series of four or more matches has had the highest percentage of overs bowled by spinners? I did ha- I did see this question come in, James. I couldn't have a look at it. I, my first thought would be, is there a four-test series between uh, Pakistan and India in India that perhaps might have had a higher percentage of spinners? Um, or if there's ever been a four-test series in Sri Lanka uh, with probably India uh, and Sri Lanka. I can't think of any, but that doesn't mean that there hasn't been one. Um, those would be the obvious ones. But being that these have been such short tests, uh, that also probably suggests that there's been more spin bowled, uh, you know, a, a high percentage, I should say. So uh, I didn't get a chance to look at that, but I think it's a very fair one. Actual spin overs, of course, I'm sure there are many series that have had a lot more, but just because, that you know, in the old days, especially in India, tests used to go five days. Um, never again. Christopher says, overseas TV rights seem to be a continuing issue with a lot of series being decided late, especially in India. How big an issue is this becoming in the grand scheme of things? Because it almost seems that these boards are expecting more money than what it's worth. Yet this comes back to the thing that I've talked about quite a bit uh, on this show and and you know in my work, which is that 
you know, these bilateral series, the board is at, th this is why it doesn't make any sense. And this is why the boards have ultimately voted themselves out of existence, but also um, caused a problem with their own relevance, which is that they keep trying to make bilateral things happen. That is not the best way of doing series like this. It's, uh, it's a terrible idea. It means you're in a p position of weakness. It's really, really hard to sell a lot of these things. Uh, they get sold at the last minute, and quite often they don't get sold at all um, because the boards have no power in, in this situation. Whereas if they're sold all in one go, suddenly the boards have all the power. Um, and they decided not to do that. They wanted bilaterals, and that's why international cricket will probably die. That was its chance, really, to uh, outside of World Cups, that was its which is, to be fair, not bilateral. It might be there might be something in this that's really where the, the main problem is if you're trying to sell one-off series and you're let's say you are sri lanka and you are playing west indies and you haven't played west indies for four years you don't have any strong relationships with any west indian broadcasters you haven't sold them any cricket for four years and then they they will have a look at it and maybe they want it and maybe they don't maybe they're willing not to have it and you see sometimes they're just like some of the numbers that is quoted by some boards is ridiculous it doesn't make any sense and i know that's certainly something that you know I, i'm not massively involved with rights issues but i'm aware of them uh you know as in i'm not that far away from i'm not that removed from them you know for talk sport got the bangladesh radio rights and we got them on saturday for a series that was starting on wednesday these things should be done a lot better than they currently are and it is an issue and yeah, I think it, it ultimately, Christopher, shows you why the bilateral model certainly doesn't work in, in modern days. I would say it never worked, but that's, you know, it, it, it was fine before, before we had TV. Tashmo says, what should Australia's bowlers do in the ashes if the ball goes soft after 25 overs like it did in England's last home test series? Would a second spinner be an option? I mean, that isn't going to happen, Tashmo. Those balls have been fixed. Uh, as far as I'm aware, that's the only time we've ever seen problems with the Duke's balls doing that, um, unless there's another summer that I've missed, but I don't think so. But as a general rule, if, if that happens, uh, I think you're going to see the Australian bowler. Well, I'd be shocked if you don't, uh, but I would assume the Australian bowlers will bowl with the keeper up at the stumps a bit more. I think that is certainly one thing they will do. I think that we'll look to bowl with more 7-2 fields. I think that's something that hasn't been done enough against England so far. Real, if you're going to make them take the risk, make them take the risk. Uh, you know, bowl as wide as the umpires will allow you with a stacked offside field. Uh, I think those are the two obvious ones. And then the third one that we haven't seen as much yet is, and I said this the first time England started this style, is if they're going to turn red ball cricket into white ball cricket, Fine. The ball's slightly better. Even if it does go soft, it's still slightly better than a white ball. Start bowling white ball lines and links to them, right? Start, you know, looking at it from that perspective. And I don't think anyone really got to that level yet. And I, I think it's a psychological barrier for some of those teams. Aditya says, how would you assess the below puff surface of the Indian women's team in knockout game? Below puff? Oh, okay. Is it due to the gap in skill between them? and teams like Australia and England, or is the reason similar to men's, whereas the enormity of the occasion makes them play conservative cricket? No, I just don't think they're as good as England or Australia women at the moment. I actually think they've played well um, in those games. I, I would actually be more concerned about how Indian women have played in the round-robin games at times than I would be about the knockout game. Look, they're good, but they're not. Australia, you know, Australia is obviously on a different level to everyone, but they're not even quite on England's level at the moment. They're probably somewhere between England in, and South Africa. I mean, me and Raf have just done a podcast that will be out here in a couple of days. I think we think India is probably in that top three teams, but 
uh, uh, for me anyway, I would have them below England um, on the rankings. If you know, if you're just doing it based on what we've seen of over the last couple of years, but they're a very, very good team. I, I wouldn't be concerned I, if the IPL does what the Big Bash did in four years' time. I just, I, I, I'd be, I'd be worried if they were losing then. I'm certainly not worried about it, the Indian women's team losing now. Emran says, "What do you think is the best?" Three format batter, in my opinion, it's probably Virat Kohli. Do you think he's uh, he's someone who believe, b- belongs in an all time eleven for all three formats? I think AB De Villiers is maybe the best of all time. I'm trying to think what his test batting average is, but I would assume, uh, especially when you factor in a wicket kept in Test cricket, I would I would assume he still has Kohli, but Kohli is going to have him for a much longer period of time, which does matter, of course. You know, it's not quite the Dale Stain versus Jimmy Anderson argument, but you know, there's there's a difference in the length of their careers, uh, and also the workload that they had to do. You know, Verrett Colley has to play a lot of cricket, um, and AB Villiers, uh, uh, AB De Villiers did not. Um, but I would argue that AB De Villiers is probably right there next to him for three format, and I'm not sure there's anyone else near those two. Is is there? I think uh, Rohit would be a little bit of a further step back, but he's not that far away. Uh, Warner, I suppose, is the other one, isn't he? Again, and I'm trying to think if there's anyone else I'm missing. Yeah, and then you got someone like Baba Azam, I suppose, but I just don't think he's quite as strong, uh, perhaps, and, and, and also a little bit earlier on in, in his career still, but he, there's no reason why he couldn't join them. But I would have thought A.B. DeVoos is probably the person who sticks out the most in uh, in those, in that. Um, but, you know, between him and Vera, it probably depends on what you ultimately think is the most important thing. I'm not sure if there is a hairier sport than cricket. From the early greats WG Grace and the demon Fred Spotheth onwards, cricket has always been Hasut, Boom, Gooch and Dev with their upper lip work. Shoaib and Imran's incredible manes. Not to mention Lily's incredible chest rug. Our sport loves curated hair. And so does Manscaped. They just look after the bit that you can't see. So if you want a cricket-inspired downstairs pubic moustache... We can think of no item better than the Lawnmower 4.0 from Manscaped. Whether you're steaming in from the ladies' end or mounting a strenuous rear guard, always put your trust in Manscaped who will look after your lower order. So go to manscaped.com and buy their kit with my red Inca code, all one word, and get yourself 20% off and make yourself 20% sexier. James says, a while ago you got a question about players who would be rated better or worse if they had played in better or worse teams. Do you feel Adam Gilchrist's test batting numbers are exaggerated by batting six and seven in a very good Australian team? I do recall him mounting a few successful rescue missions, but also re- uh, recall him coming in at five for 400 a lot. Would he have stepped up if he had to bat at number four in a weaker team? So I, I thought I covered this last time, James, with, with Gilchrist, but I think the most important thing with Gilchrist is he would be a different player in a weaker team because he wouldn't have come in at the age of 27 or 28. He comes in late and he's fully developed. Most players of his test um, ability with a bat come in before the age of 24, probably even before the age of 22. So he doesn't develop in a normal way uh, as a player. Even if you look at him as a shield player, I'd have to go back and look at those old Western Australian teams, but I get the feeling he batted five quite a bit, maybe six. I don't remember him batting four. He did bat four, I think, for New South Wales, but that was as a specialist batter earlier on. So he never develops in the way that a batter should develop. And that's why when test teams eventually worked him out uh he has a really stark drop off towards the end of his career and i don't think it's just his age although perhaps that played a part as well i do think it's because teams kind of worked him out a little bit but 
the reason they were able to work him out is because he was quite a one-dimensional player and he was quite a one-dimensional player because he came to test cricket so late. He already knew what he was good at and he did that for a short period of time until, you know, uh, team started to bowl better to him. So it's a really tough one with Adam Gilchrist because you could argue with his level of batting talent, had he came into a weaker team and had to develop his game, he would have been even better. You could also argue that if he had to do that, maybe he couldn't develop his game. And he was just that one-dimensional kind of batter. And because of that, um, he would never have been the next level of player. So it's a really – and that, that's why these sorts of things are quite tough. You know, you can look at you can look at someone like Stuart McGill and you can say, I think based on his entire record, and say, had he played more tests, he would have had a far worse average um, and, you know, he certainly wouldn't have had the sort of record that he has now. But you could also say perhaps if he played far more tests, he would have built the other skills that he needed to be successful on the pitches that didn't necessarily help him. I think looking at his first-class record and looking at his test record, it's probably fairly safe to say with McGill that he wouldn't, you know, that he wouldn't have been a much better bowler if he'd played a lot more games. Gilchrist is, is not as clear because of the whole batting down the order thing. And I think that is tricky. And I do think if he played in another team, he would have had to play slightly differently. I always think he would be attacking. I don't think he would be Gilchrist um, in the same way that we think about him now. And that's the, the, the same with all those different kinds of players. Philip says, love your chat about the run out and non-striker end. If not a mancad, could it be called a ron, rond, or ronning? Um, my experience in English club cricket is that people are disgusted by the concept, including uh, lots of the younger generations. Seems odd when the MCC shows support for Ron. Is this something you, you'd expect? Look, England has been, I think, traditionally probably the most anti um, the mancad of any of the cricket um, countries. I'm trying to think if there's anyone else that's really, I was going to say West Indies, but I think that sort of that late generation of West Indies probably changed them. Yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, having played club cricket in England, I certainly enjoyed it a lot more than club cricket in Australia, but there is a lot of nonsense, like just ridiculous amount of nonsense that goes on that is part of the old class system of, of English cricket that still gets passed on. Let, let's not forget that, you know, county players don't get a cap when they play for England, uh, when they play for their county, they have to earn the cap. No, you earn the cap by getting selected for your team. That's how you earn the cap. That's what a cap is, you absolute idiots. So there's a lot of these sort of old sort of um, styles. And I think that in the, I think there is something within the sort of amateur style of cricket that probably was not particularly onside with, with things like man cards. Not, not to say that there weren't amateur cricketers who did it, because quite clearly they were. But, but I do think that, that that was a part of it. But I think the biggest swing back to conservatism in cricket comes from England in the 1940s and 50s. And and they romanticized the previous era that wasn't even anything like they remember anyway. And that is probably where what you're talking about comes from, Philip. But yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree. I would say, and it's really weird what things that countries care about and what countries don't care about. Handle the ball in Australia is, well, it's not called handle the ball anymore, obstructing the field now. But when it was handle the ball in Australia, I played in multiple games where people were given out doing that. And you know, very silly ones like, you know, dropping a defensive shot at their feet, picking it up, handing it back to a fielder. And, you know, if the ball was still moving, the umpire was willing to give them out um, generally in, in that situation. Whereas in English cricket, I've appealed for pretty blatant handled the balls. Uh, I had a guy defend a ball onto, onto the ground and it spun back and it was still moving, but slowly, but towards the stumps and he picked it up. Uh, and I appealed and my teammates were absolutely aghast. And I was like, he's 
broken the laws of cricket. <laughs> it's it's a dismissal. And they're like, oh, but it wasn't going to some. So I said, well, we don't know that because he picked the ball up. <laughs> we, we, you know, that's what the law um, says. So I do think there's a few things like that that I play within English cricket that are a little bit more towards that that old style of conservatism. But yeah, I do think around the world in general, I, th- I think there's a lot of younger cricket fans coming through that feel differently about that. Uh, Ian says, after an awful first test, was Wagner spell against England on day five? Uh, the second test, one of those form spikes we see in, in late career players, more often batters. Um, or do you think he could do a Jimmy be playing cricket at, at 40? Yeah, I think it's probably more. I mean, he's still bowling around 128. Although I, I've got a feeling he was closer to the mid 150s during that spell. I wrote the piece that I wrote about him the other day or last week, whenever it was, because I felt that we might be seeing the last of him. And I wanted, you know, he's obviously one of my favorite cricketers, um, you know, incredibly important cricketer in some ways uh, in the history of the game. Anyone who plays that differently to everyone else is someone that we should definitely be remembering. And, and um, I'm doing a podcast with him, with Dan Gallon, actually. And so, so from that perspective, I wrote it thinking he might be on his way out. I, he really bowled poorly in the first test. I also think he bowled quite poorly at times in the second test, but he's still near Wagner. And I also think that, and this hasn't been talked about as much, and perhaps if it was a three-test series, it would be more. England didn't play that fourth innings in the style that England usually play it. Now, there's a couple of reasons why. Uh, I, I would say that one of those reasons is that uh, there was inconsistent bounce. And it's much harder to play attacking shots when you're not exactly sure what the, the, the pitch is going to do, which is something we haven't had to deal with all that much while they've been playing baseball. The other one is that New Zealand wicketkeeper um, Latham um, Blundell came up to the stumps. That's a really, really interesting plot twist. And I think that kept them in the crease. And, that, and it was interesting that Joe Root was the best batter and he's the one who needs that method the least. And then, of course, because of those two things, they weren't ahead. They weren't crushing New Zealand at any stage. You know, they had some good partnerships, of course. They weren't crushing New Zealand at any stage, and they didn't break New Zealand's spirit. And then when Wagner came back on with that, with his theory, they kind of half went at it. If you look at, you know, if you look at Stokes' shot, Root's shot, even Folks' shot, he's expected a bit more from Folks. And that is when I think Wagner is at his absolute best with that short pitch bowling. When you have it, if you're not going to either just take them on the body, or absolutely smash them. I think that that the little chip ones, I'm trying to think, Devin Conway did it to Ben Stokes, I think, in one of the test matches. It must have been the first one. Was it to Stokes or was it to Ollie Robertson? Whoever else, someone bowled short and he played like a chip hook. If you go back and look at a lot of Wagner's wickets, they're not from people playing full-blooded hooks and pulls. They're from people trying to just knock it around the corner for one. And I, and I think that, that is not a very natural shot. And it's not something that people practice that often. Uh, and I thought that's what England were doing at that stage. Um, but as far as Wagner, if he has slowed down as much as I think he slowed down, I can't see how he's going to be able to continually be a threat. The only thing I would say is if he did master the in-swinger again and perhaps you know added a wobble ball or something as well, I could see how that with the occasional short pitch bowling would would keep him around in test cricket a little bit longer i thought it was great that he was important at the end of that test but it hasn't changed my my feeling that he's he's going to struggle um to be a a constant threat at his new pace patrick says if you were to design the ideal fifth bowler what attributes would you give them okay the problem with this patrick is it's a very good question 
but you have to know what the other four bowlers are. <laughs> so that's the first thing with a fifth bowler. You know, so let's say you had three seamers and no spinner. Your ideal uh, fifth bowler then is probably going to be a left arm finger spinner or, or, or a leg spinner, probably a leg spinner. Um, that's not going to be the case uh, if you have a slightly different uh, attack. You know, if your best four bowlers are an off spinner, a left arm finger spinner, a tall fast bowler, and uh, uh, you know, medium fast seam bowler, perhaps what your fifth bowler you want your fifth bowler to be like an Andre Russell, Ben Stokes, who can bowl ninety miles an hour uh, type type of player, which Andre Russell did early in his first class career. It's a tremendous shame that Andre Russell didn't come around five or ten years earlier because you look at some of the games he played in first class cricket. He was a monster. It would have been fantastically fun to see him play in Test cricket. But yeah, sadly now he would never be able to do it. He'd never be able to bowl 10 overs in a day as we saw in the one day World Cup. Uh, so yeah, so I do think, you know, so if you go back to um, Jacob Oram or Tom Moody, so if your, fa- if your fast bowlers are, um, let, let's have a look at Australia, uh, where you have McDermott, Merv Hughes, um, Paul Rifle, Damon Fleming, uh, you know, as your, as your seamers and you have Shane Warne as your spinner, then having someone like Tom Moody uh, as your fifth bowler would be very good. Or, trying to think of a very good, you know, Shelb Malik. No, Muhammad Hafiz. Muhammad Hafiz in that situation would be very good. So it really does depend on what your four bowlers are. There's almost no bad fifth bowler. I think the worst fifth bowler would be, let's say Australia in 2002 had Joe Root in their batting order. And Joe Root and Colin Miller are really, really similar in that they're both faster off spinners. It's hard to use them that much unless you've got two left-handers, you know, on day four or day five um, batting together. So I I think from that perspective, that's when a a fifth bowler is less important, when they don't have that kind of a skill set that allows you to maximize. You want want your fifth bowler to be legitimately a fifth option. And I think, you know, with Joe Root, if you look at him, he's a fifth option if you're playing against a team with a bunch of left-handers or if you're playing in Asia. But the rest of the time, he's not particularly a fifth option. If you look at someone like Ben Stokes, you know, or, or Jadeja, you know, they're legitimate fifth options kind of everywhere in the world. And, you know, the majority of the time, Jadeja's in the top four bowlers. Um, and Ben Stokes, because of his skill set, you know, in most places is has the ability to at least give you five to ten important overs. This is before his knee injury. But great question, Patrick. I really like that. Christopher says, how big a platform can cricket get on TikTok uh, with their algorithms? Seems that there are some content creators which specialize in cricket. For me, it's more likely to watch them than YouTube, apart from me, of course. Thank you, Chris. Um, also seems like huge potential in highlights, but guessing that won't be sorted unless there's uh, geo-blockers, which I believe TikTok don't have yet, albeit sports, uh, albeit all sports have this problem. The biggest problem with TikTok and cricket, of course, is that India is not on it. It's probably my fastest growing social media platform, and maybe outside of YouTube. Actually, podcasts are doing pretty well at the moment. But yeah, I've been picking up a lot of followers on TikToks, but I think that's the that's the issue with TikTok um, and cricket. I, look, if you... You know, if you do have access to it, so sorry to all the people who live in India or any other country that doesn't have access to TikTok. Um, it is, I think there are some great uh, cricket content uh, providers on there. You know, the dealt with um, uh, uh, duo from England, uh, certainly a lot of fun. There's a lot of new people that seem to be popping up there all the time. What I like about TikTok is that as opposed to Twitter, which has copied the for you section model of TikTok, uh, I find on TikTok that it kind of does work out what I want to see, you know, random clips of Breaking Bad and BoJack Horseman or um, or Excel spreadsheet hacks, which I really like. And, you know, all these like random little, you know, cricket and, you know, basketball highlights. But it's not just giving me basketball highlights. It's specifically giving me basketball highlights that I like in a way that the other 
uh, algorithms around the world. I, I mean, from an algorithmic point of view, TikTok is so far advanced to anything else. Um, it's absolutely brilliant. But that would seem to be a big design flaw with TikTok Cricket. I have talked to the people in charge of TikTok Cricket, and to be fair, they not, I don't think they really know what to do with it because they don't have India. Um, obviously, they made a big play with Pakistan. Uh, I, I can't speak for everyone, but my videos don't seem to get viewed that much by Pakistanis on 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 TikTok. Um, my videos tend to be mostly, I think it's England and Australia, um, and then I think New Zealand might be my third biggest audience uh, when it comes to that. But it's a, it's a really interesting way. Uh, look, I really like it. I, I kind of wish I had more time to do more stuff on it. I think if I was coming through, that would have been more like my favorite place um, to make stuff. Uh, I just, you know, it's a combination of writing and video, which is kind of my thing. Manon says, best advice you'd give when coaching high school students is, I'm assuming you're meaning cricket here. Um, <laughs> as someone who dropped out of high school, uh, if you're asking for actual school advice, I may not be the best one. But if, if you're talking about uh, studies, the best thing I would say is that essentially school is just something to be hacked. All, all of life, everything that you try and get into, every system that you try and get into, every system that you're inside of already um, it's just something to be hacked. There is always a hack, a cheat, a way of doing it that makes uh, things go better. So if you're talking about from a student perspective, that's kind of how I run my life. Um, and that's certainly what I wish someone would have told me when I was 15. Uh, if you're talking about high school students playing cricket, I think that I, I think the most important thing when you're you know learning cricket around that uh, 15 or 16 age is that you get the as much advice as possible, but you also understand the biomechanics of what makes you successful as a player, whether that be batting or bowling or whatever that may be. And then you match it up with the advice that you're given by other people. So what I mean by this is, especially now, a coach says to you, your front arm is too low, right? And you're like, well, I get wickets, so I don't need that, right? Go and film your front arm and then have a look at it. And then have a look at that compared to other players and go, well, is there other, are there other players who bowl similarly to me, whatever that may be, who also have a front arm that's quite low? Is it, you know, am I ever going to be able to get to that sort of level? That's the way that I think people should be thinking about cricket. And I think that will allow us to have a lot more unique kind of players coming through rather than everyone playing exactly the same um, as each other. And I think that chances are you are not in the 10 most uh, best players in your country. That doesn't mean that if you're very clever and you continue to learn and film yourself and study other players and see what they do well and, and work out what you do well, you know, and add to that uh, and change that and mix that up and understand it. I, I think for me, and, and I talk about this more as a writer than as a cricketer, once you understand what it is that you do well, you can expand on it and twist it and fuck around with it, basically, without it falling apart. If you don't understand what you do well, you're only ever going to do that well. And there is always a danger, of course, that one day it won't work. So, uh, yeah, I hope that helps. And as I said, that's not just about cricket. I kind of think that's about everything. Gary says, what tools set up a spinner to be specifically good in Asia as opposed to everywhere else? The first thing is side spin, Gary. Uh, you need more side spin in Asia than you do in other places. Um, it's a... You don't, the overspin is not as important, depending on the pitch. There are some pitches where it is important, but at, uh, overall, side spin is more important than overspin because it, it, getting overspin in Asia, you might still not be getting drastically high bounce. So you're still not bringing in maybe the close infielders or, you know, the other kinds of dismissals. So side spin is very important. The other thing is pace. You know, those pitches spin um, 
that, uh, you know, most pitchers in Asia are going to give you some assistance off the straight. But if you if you bowl slowly on them, uh, they can call they can cause you problems because the players can ad- adapt. And you know, a- Asian players are just more used to playing spin. So there's absolutely no doubt from that perspective that they have a big advantage over them over you. So you know, the ability to match, um, uh, you know, sp- moving the ball off the square uh, or off the straight, I should say, at a pace would seem to be a fairly fairly important thing. Whereas there are other things that are important about spin bowling perhaps in other places. And it's not that Asian spinners don't have those as well, of course. You know, someone like Ashwin is a bowler who can bowl anywhere. And he's going to be, a th- you know, Rangana Harath and Ashwin are two bowlers who, on a, on the flattest pitch anywhere, are still going to make batters think. They're still going to test batters in different ways. But the very basic skills, there are many more, you know, in Sri Lanka and India, very a lot more spinners who maybe don't have those kinds of skills, but they do have the ability to bowl at a fairly swift pace um, and put revs on the ball on the side of the ball, which means that they're maximizing their ability um, to spin the ball. Uh, and especially if you're bowling faster, that's even more important. Whereas outside of Asia, you know, in, in England, you would almost say that one of the most important things is probably drift. I thought that was one thing that Graham Swan was absolutely brilliant at, that perhaps someone like Monty Panasar was not. You know, the ability to drift the ball in the air. We saw Shane Warne in England, for instance, um, do that sort of stuff. South Africa, we almost have to take South Africa out of the equation because I'm spin is changing so quickly in South Africa. I'm not even sure what the main skill you would need there at the moment is. Uh, Australia, obviously, it is, it is, um, tended to be bounce. West Indies vary so much from pitch to pitch. You know, Guyana um, and and Sabina Park, uh, not even related to each other when it comes to what you probably want to do for each kind of spinners there. Um, and then New Zealand is probably another one where drift is is very important. So you know, you, there are it's more varied in the other places, but in those other places, the spinners are trying to stay on at a certain point, whereas that's not as big a deal in Asia. You know, it can be if you're if you're a rupee spinner and you know the uh, the batters are very good, but. It's not, the, it's not the same kind of question. Bloody Bugger says, do you think Asian teams tend to do better in Cena conditions compared to Cena teams in Asian conditions? Uh, not traditionally, no. Um, I, I wouldn't have thought that was the case. How many times have Pakistan beaten Australia? Um, have Pakistan beaten South Africa? Have Sri Lanka beaten South Africa? Sri Lanka beat them once, didn't they, recently? So no, I don't think so. I don't think that's the case. Um, I've always thought that the one advantage is that if you are from an Asian and and there are disadvantages, of course, as well, which, um, the one advantage I always thought is that chances are, if you play in Asia outside of a couple of wickets in Sri Lanka and India, you're probably also going to face a lot of seam bowling. Yes. It's going to be a different kind of seam bowling, um, than anywhere else. Um, but you're probably going to face a lot of, uh, of, of seam bowling. That is not really the case. Um, in in a lot of you know the 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 western uh Cena countries as you say um and that's why i've always thought that west indies had such a natural advantage because their pitches can be asian or can be australian you know that that the advantage there of if you play on all those different pitches of having the ability to play on pretty much everything Maybe not as many seeming wickets. However, the ball can really swing in the West Indies. Um, and now they're using the Dukes. Maybe it's, you know, that is also changing a little bit as well. But West Indies was a really, I always thought it was a really big advantage because, it, uh, you know, there are players that come through the West Indies who are absolutely brilliant players of spin. You know, someone look at someone like Roston Chase. There aren't many players from 
other senior countries who are as good against spin and as bad against seam as Roston Chase is. And, you know, we've certainly seen, you know, you know Brian Lara and, and uh, other um, uh, Trinidad players come through that were absolutely brilliant against spin as well because they grew up on spinning wickets. And I do think the variety of the wickets there is a huge advantage over everyone else. But, I, I mean, I'd have to have a look at the, the, the records that you're talking about. But the fact that Pakistan, Pakistan had was number one in the world kind of in the 80s, but without the ratings, but more or less. Uh, India becomes number one in the world late in the 2000s. Sri Lanka's never been number one in the world. Obviously, Bangladesh really struggled um, outside of Bangladesh, let alone in in the rest of Asia, but let alone the rest of the world. Um, so when you say that, I, I mean, I'm wondering if you're just talking about India, but even then, I wouldn't say that India has been brilliant outside of Asia. It's really hard. I mean, that's one of the most fascinating things about test cricket that is why it makes it a brilliant sport is these, the, the difference in conditions when you travel to these different places is, is so tough and so dynamic. Um, and also... You know, within Australia, that you can get the Gabba has pace and bounce, the MCG can have bounce, not always pace, and the, uh, you know the Wacker uh, or, or now per stadium, uh, you know, have excessive bounce. Right? They're all slightly different within themselves. So, if you are a player from another country coming over, that you know, there's changes there. The same way that you know, uh, Old Trafford um, is different than the Oval and everything else. There's so much variety within those. So if you're an overseas player, you might actually be able to make runs at a specific ground because you might have the ability to do that, which means you might make a 200 in that and the rest of the series, you might not you know, score over 40, but your overall record in that country looks pretty good. Um, but you may not still be a good player in those conditions. So it's a really, really, um, the, the whole thing is so fascinating. And that's why test cricket is more interesting than limited overs cricket. From that perspective, in that limited overs pitches are more similar to each other. There's still obviously changes within them, but they are, you know, once you make a pitch more for white ball cricket, it's a little bit more benign. And I've, I've said this before, I would assume T20 cricket, eventually we will have hybrid wickets and then the next step will probably be having synthetic wickets. We may never get to synthetic wickets, but there's a very big chance that we will, um, which would make test cricket and first class cricket even more um, of an outlier at that stage. All right, well, that's everyone on Patreon. I'm going to take a short break and have a look at what is in the room, if I can find where the ad is. You're watching, you're watching, you're listening. You're generally in the area of Wagon Wheel with Jared Kimball. Anwesh says, is excessive spin harder to play than excessive swing or bounce because it attacks the stump small? Every mistake leads to an appeal, whereas with the latter, often just beats the bat and looks good. Well, excessive bounce is probably still – depends what you mean by excessive bounce. Inconsistent bounce is probably the hardest thing to play. You're either in danger physically or your stumps are in danger. Um, if you can't trust that the actual surface is playing fair, um, that's probably the hardest thing to face. Excessive swing is, I would say, easier to face than excessive spin. And the reason I would say that is you can see it swing out of the hand. So – you can at least be ready for it a little bit, um, and it's tough, but I wouldn't think it is more tough than anything else. Also, swing is the hardest thing to be accurate with, right? Because you don't really control how much the ball swings, and we know that there are certain angles where the ball stops swinging, 
for instance. Otherwise, every outswing bowler in the world would aim the ball at leg stump and try and hit the top of off, right? And that's a very rare ball uh, for anyone to ever bowl. So uh, I would say that spin is better than, uh, harder to play than that. I would still think that um, excessive seam um, is at least on a level of spin, especially if you're bowling it on length that can hit the stumps. Um, just because of the pace aspect of it, of how quickly it happens, you you know you can't really react to which way the ball is going to go off the seam, how much it's going to go, and, and anything else. Also, the other thing with excessive spin is you do have the ability to get outside the line e- easier and to use your feet easier and to play the sweep shot, all of which you can't do against excessive seam. So if seam is bowled on the right length, then it should be uh, far harder to play than spin in that situation, I would have thought, and wish. Uh, Siddharth says, uh, is there any realistic chance for India to defend this low total? Apologies to everyone listening to this podcast after Australia already has. Uh, the lowest total defended in a test match is 85 runs back in 1882. Yeah, I mean... You've got to remember in test cricket, the one thing I would say is when you look at a record like that, we saw, oh, I'm trying to remember now, was it Victoria chased over 400 runs in a day in a Shield game? And someone else chased over 500 runs in a Shield game. Ali Brown made over 200, was this in a 40-over game or a 50-over game? Uh, Well before anyone else did. There's a lot more domestic cricket played. And when you look at domestic cricket, things like I think you'll find that there's teams who have um, defended low totals before. Uh, And there are teams who have done everything. So I always look at if something has never been done in domestic cricket, I'd be willing to say, yeah, chances are this this won't happen. So I'd be more interested to look at what the lowest totals defended in first-class cricket are if you're looking for a a realistic chance of whether this is going to happen. That said, everything has to go right. In, in this sort of situation. If you go back to what's one of the best ones, Dennis Lilly playing for Western Australia. I think there's a really good game. I think it was actually a one-day game where they defended a very, very low to- uh, very, very low total. But you kind of read about that and just everything went their way. And I think that's what has to happen. You you probably you could probably get away with one drop catch. You can probably get away with one umpire's call against you but you probably almost need everything else, you know. Uh, you, and the other thing I would say is if you're trying to get bowl a team out for 75, even, in, oh, this is, well, 75, I don't know why I picked that number, but let's go with 75. If you're trying to bowl a team out for 75, in um, the other thing that you need is the luck of, we know that it's, I think it's 12 mistakes, 12 to 15 mistakes in a test match for every wicket. You're going to need a lot fewer mistakes of that right because the the reason that these totals get defended so much is one player can swing um and score 20 to 25 runs and it changes everything you know so drastically um i've I, you know this is probably going to be out of date and they probably won't do it but that's why if you open with travis head and mitchell stark means that you know jadeja and or, or um akshar is going to have to bowl to two left-handers allegedly unless ashwin gets them out or the seam bowlers and and then head can go after the seam bowlers and um stark can go after the spinners one of them comes off even three boundaries you know it's a huge percentage of the you know more than 10 percent of the you know 15 percent, depending on the, what the boundaries are i suppose of the total disappearing you know straight away so from that perspective that is why it is so hard to defend that but it is defendable it's, it's funny actually i think India's odds are 14 to 1. I think someone sent me that. I didn't look at it myself, but I think a friend sent me that. And he was saying, what percentage of the time would you expect India to be able to defend this against this Australian team? 
And he was saying probably 20% of the time, which I thought was a bit high, but you know, I, I can understand that there, you know, there, I don't think it's that crazy f- for to think that India can bowl Australia out for less than a hundred. I thought they bowled really poorly in the first innings, by the way, too. Um, so if they bowled better, it'd be really interesting. But the problem is that now Australia have the ability of that one 25-year-old, 25-year-old, 25-run slogger um, can make such a huge difference to this chase. And that's the problem for India. There's no second chances. DM95 says, how do we end up with two different stats, both called strike rate? Well, we have two different stats, both called average as well. <laughs> Would it make sense that it was either balls per wicket or, ball, uh, or um, balls per run? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, there's, as I said, we have average for batters and bowls as well. Um, so you're right. The other one is more egregious. Um, I'm, I mean, we usually call it bowling strike rate, though, don't we? Or when we're talking about bowlers, we kind of assume people get it. But yeah, it's not ideal. But then again, neither is almost everything in cricket. Anvit says, why did India delay Akshar Patel? He's the second highest run getter and probably the most informed batter of the series. This is a really important thing. I think I did a video on this. But maybe, maybe it was one of the mood boards early on. I can't remember now. Akshar Patel is not the second best batter that India has in this series. Akshar Patel is coming in down the order. Quite often when either the bowlers are tired or the ball is a little bit softer. Sometimes, if he's lucky, both of these things have happened, right? That's a completely different situation than him having to go in at the top when the ball is hard and the bowlers are fresh. These are really important things to note. There's a reason why you sometimes get um, series where tailenders uh, do this. If Akshar Patel was the second best batter in that lineup, they would actually put him up the order. If they legitimately thought that, you know, there would be no reason for that. You could also use him as a pinch hitter. I've got no problems with that. And, you know, I've just advocated for Mitchell Stark doing it. Um, but you've got to remember that there is a reason why lower order players make and make runs in those situations. And it's generally because it's easier. Uh, I talked to Mark Butcher years ago, and so he batted, opened the batting, and he batted first drop. And I think over a couple of games, for whatever reason, they batted him at number six. On a, must be number six, maybe number five, but somewhere around that. And he, he, I remember him just explaining it to me and just looking at me like, you know, in, in that way that people sort of open their eyes that little bit wider so that you have to believe them, where he was just like, Jared, you have no idea how much easier it is to bat in the middle order than anywhere else, right? And that gets easier when you get to six. Seven, eight, nine. That's why. That's the difference. And quite often you see tail enders. We know that tail enders aren't as good. If we know if tail enders open the batting, the vast majority of them would average far less than they currently do, unless their, their edges flew to bound, for boundaries more often. And uh, we've seen the amount of times that, that tail enders struggle against the second new ball for that exact same reason, right? And then you have factor in fresh bowlers and also planning. Uh, you know, we plan for batters at the top of the order much better than we do lower the order. There's still a lot of teams who don't like to plan for the lower order players. They like that to sort of look after itself. I remember the when I first started, they, our, our um, uh, team only wanted me to plan for the top four. It turned out to be the number six absolutely destroyed us in that first game, and they allowed me to talk through everyone. But they didn't want their minds to be too cluttered for each individual player. So he's not the second best. Uh, he's the second highest run scorer um, and you could say he's in form but as I said it's a very different situation that said if a player is feeling confident in a matchup against players uh, in the way that Akshar probably is at the moment that's when I think you actually throw them up right and you say you're feeling it man you're you're in form 
you've got this this lineup. Do you want to go up the order and have a go at it? I, I don't have a problem with that. I, I think it's I think it's a clever use of your resources, uh, which comes back to the Mitchell Stark idea as well. You you have eleven players in your team. They all have different kinds of skills. At the end of the game, what you want to be able to have done is use those skills in the best way possible to have won you the game. And I think that in cricket, too often, we don't do that. And what we do is we go with pre-assigned roles. Uh, there should be more flexibility in batting lineups specifically and in, in test cricket. Satya says, how do you evaluate the quality of domestic cricket structures? I hear 99.94 uh, talk about the declining standards of their domestic T20 and first-class games. Pakistan domestic may also change with new administrations. It's tough because it's not always, it doesn't always correlate with how your international team is doing. Like, for instance, if you talk to people around the world who were playing in counter cricket, they were saying that counter cricket was getting stronger and stronger and stronger at the same time that no one in England could make any runs. So those two things are a little bit weak, but I think there are certain things that you can look at. You can compare it to older versions of the same thing. I think we, you know, I think with that, uh, there are very, very obvious things um, that are being made, but a lot of it is eye test. And so it is a little bit wishy-washy. Uh, with T20 tournaments, it's a little bit easier because you can actually track what the overseas players are doing. So with T20 tournaments, it is um, very doable. With first-class cricket, outside of county cricket is usually very, very tough. Nagenda says, I thank you for the super chat, Nagenda. What happened to Jay Roy after the 2019 World Cup? He seems lost. We actually, I don't know if you saw him against South Africa. I thought he looked exceptional in that series, like all of his footwork had come back. This is my theory, and it's probably worth a video. Um, and I can't remember who I was talking. I must have been in talk sport. It must have been maybe Matt, Matt Pryor. And Mickey Arthur, I don't know if I talked to his coach, Gareth Batty, or if I did, I shouldn't throw his coach under the bus, but certainly talked to the other guys. We knew, all knew he had a weakness against spin, and he really worked hard at improving his play against spin. You know, he started reverse sweeping everything, became a much better player. At that stage, he then was much worse against seam bowling. And notably, like, you have a look at his record since 2019, notably. The other thing I would say, just quietly, is he's barely played a one-dayer. I don't think he's played a list A game for Surrey since the 2019 World Cup, and England don't play that many one days, and he hasn't played in all of them anyway. So I think that, that those two things do play a part. But I do think if you spend a lot of time improving one part of your game, there's, there should be a slight regression on the other side of your game as well. I just think he got into some bad footwork um, patterns as much as anything. Uh, he, he, I don't think his feet were solid um i don't think he gave himself a good chance of of hitting the ball hard which is kind of what he wants to do but as i said in south africa i looked at his footwork again i thought it was really good i still think he's a, a chance of not playing in that world cup but let's see bamo says i feel sam's is too emotional and negative on 99.94 okay you don't agree with someone's opinion <laughs> what, what what would you like me to do yeah uh, you know he's frustrated People get frustrated and they speak. I don't really know what to do with that one. But uh, thank you for the super chop, Vamo uh, Saab. Uh, Arian says, could the England white ball team have better used Rashid's batting? I feel like it's a waste at times to bat him at 11, given his obvious talent. I don't think he's batted at 11 that much, Arian. He's batted at 10 a bit. But I think when he was batting at 10, they had like, you know, Liam Plunkett um, ahead of him in the order trying to think if Wokes ever batted at nine. He probably didn't, did he? Uh, so I wouldn't have thought uh, that that he would have done that that much um, from, from that perspective. Um, so 
I have thought that Adol Rashid, I probably think this was Rashid Khan, and there's someone else I think this was as well. I've forgotten their name, but maybe Rashid Khan's changed a little bit of the last couple of years. But I thought certainly early Rashid Khan, and certainly think this was Adol Rashid, is that there's a bit of chaos in their batting, but they are not particularly set up to hit fours and sixes with all the fielders out. And so the best time to use them is probably in the power play because they hit the ball to weird areas, they swing in in difficult ways, and it's really, really interesting uh, to see how you bowl to them and how you handle it. But there is a reason why pinch hitters are not used, and that's because pinch hitters, if you were that good, you would already be batting up the order, and they usually have weaknesses, and it doesn't take long for the opposition to work out those weaknesses. And quite often, pinch hitters don't work because of the amount of dot balls that happen because the balls aren't being put in the areas that they want. Still can cause some chaos, though, because you might have to use a bowler out of rotation that you didn't want to use. So it, it still it still does have that impact. But with Adil Rashid, I'm not sure there are any players in the batting order of England that he should be batting ahead of. Uh, he certainly wasn't a better player than Plunkett or Willie. You know, Wokes and Curran are vastly um, superior to him. You know, Moen Ali as well. So, you know, Lee and Dawson, Samit Patel, all those guys that have, you know, have come in and been all-rounders are much stronger batters than him. Could they have used him in the way that I'm talking about, Aaron? Perhaps at times. I think that's probably beyond him now. I think he was supposed to play for the Melbourne Stars one when I was working for them. There was a potential that he was going to play. Well, was he kind of come over to – no, he wasn't going to play CPL. So it must have been the Stars. And I had already prepared a big document about how he should bat up the order um, and provide some chaos. But I, I think with him, with Rashid, as someone who watched him bat a lot when he was younger, he, you know, with the whole the whole um, ten first class hundreds thing, he's not a ten first class hundreds batter anymore. You know, he's way older than that now, and he's handy and he can still bat. But I've also seen him bat really poorly a lot of times as well. He's an above average number nine which is fair. I'm not sure he's a great number eight, though, um, anymore. He, when he was younger, certainly. Um, and I think he was – England let a talent like him ab- absolutely waste away. And they could have developed his batting as well. I think for Yorkshire, Goffey used to bat him at six. Um, and you could certainly, you know, for England, could have batted at seven and eight and completely changed their lineup uh, from from that perspective. So I do think, I do think that there was a, a problem there. But now I think he's – Probably, you know, number nine is a more than a fine position for him to bat in. Uh, I'd be shocked if, you know, I know he played well the other day, but I'd be shocked if he consistently does that. When I see him get runs now, I kind of feel that they're a little bit more lucky than when he was younger and he had a little bit more skills. And I don't know how old he is, but I'll tell you a fun story. When Brad Hogg played for Australia in 2012, and I was talking to George Bailey, and I was like, what are you doing batting Brad Hogg at at, um, number 11? For those who don't know, Brad Hogg started his career as a first-class batter. Batted number six for Western Australia. Eventually, the spin bowling came came on much later on. And so I'm saying to Bales, what, what are you doing? I bat him up the order. And he said, Jared, he's 42. He could bat when he was 32. And now, he, you know, he can barely do it. And, and, and you've got to remember, if you're not a frontline batter, which Hoggy wasn't, you know, I mean, you know, he was just on, he was a fringe first class batter when he was very young. Certainly wasn't um, that when he, you know, when he was by the, probably by the age of 30. If you're, if you're a fringe frontline batter, which, um, uh, Amol, they say, and I have done a really interesting thing on this, your batting is going to fall off the cliff a lot quicker. And so I would say with that, or Rashid, batting him at number nine is probably a 
almost a perfect position because it means you get a very good number nine. Um, but if you did push him up the order, I'm not sure you'd get it. But historically, I mean, I would say England wasted Adil Rashid. I went to the game in 2009. I think he smashed Australia around for 20 or 30 odd, bowled really well, took a couple of wickets, was man of the, man of the match. Two games later, he was out of the team and he barely played. I, I, I still, I'm still upset that they picked Graham Swan over him, <laughs> and I was wrong. Graham Swan was clearly the better spinner than him. But some of the stuff that was said about Adol Rashid, I mean, there was definitely a racial connotation to some of it, but also some of it was just nonsense. Like, you'd get people saying, like, really smart cricket people, writing this in major newspapers and saying this on TV and radio, he's a roller, not a spinner. What? I just watched a test match one day where he spun the ball nine degrees. It's not a roller. He spins the ball massively. A roller, that's Darren Lehman's a roller. <laughs> and there was just so much nonsense spoken about him uh, early on in his career. And I think England, I think we now know what an incredible talent they wasted. But to be fair, I'm not sure he would have fitted into some of the earlier cultures. I'm not sure he fit into the Andy Flower culture. Um, just the kind of cricketer he was. Not that Andy Flower would have been against him uh, on a personality level. But, you know, Graham, uh, Graham. Uh, Stephen Finn didn't fit into, you know, the Andy Flower culture, which is why we didn't see as much of him. So from that perspective, uh, yes, they wasted him, but I, I kind of think they wasted his bowling a lot more than his batting. And there seems to be a spammer who just keeps asking about great cricketer. When's your collab with great cricketer? I think I was on great cricketer's podcast 10 years ago. There's my collab. Uh, you know, I'm sure I'll be on it again one day and I'm sure I'll get Higo or Sam on my podcast um, at one stage as well. He goes got some great um, opinions about how left-handers ruin cricket. Um, I should get him on one day to have a chat with him about that. But uh, they're great. But no, I, I'm not looking at. Uh, I mean, I'm not. I just go through my phone really and 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 send messages to people when I've seen an article uh, <laughs> that they've written of recent times. Um, but yeah, I, I think we'll call it there. Uh, huge thanks to everyone for the questions again. We have a really good Ravager Deja videos coming up shortly. Might be changing around some of the podcasts and everything else, uh, but there's heaps of content coming up. I don't think Barrett will be on Uncovered on Monday unless uh, things change with him and me because I've got a t I've got a one day or as well that day, so I've got to try and fit in the the podcast around that. So that's probably when he's going to be free. Also at this at this rate, uh, but plenty of stuff um, happening behind the scenes, and we'll be trying to get that out. Remember, uh, follow Bodyline T-shirts. Got some great t-shirts out um, at the moment and, uh, you know, manscape yourself and everything else. And I'll see you again very, very soon. Uh, what's today? Thursday. See you on Monday at the latest, I would say. <laughs> Talk again. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on 99.94. Remember to download our app or just search for 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon, which also allows you to ask questions before anyone else and many other extras as well. There is a link in the show notes. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week, and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. 
This podcast is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great support team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapia producing podcasts, Maida Akam producing some of the shows, and Makunda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. 